Good to see all of you here this morning in good and crisp, chilly weather. I picked the title today. It's something I've been studying for a while. I love the book of John, and it's what's in your way. And we're going to ultimately get to the point to where we're going to look at a crippled man laying by the side of a pool, and he had a lot of things in his way. How many of you this morning, when you got up, had something get in your way, could have been something minor, that might have slowed you down getting here this morning? You know, you burnt your toast, your coffee wasn't made, uh, your clothes wasn't dry. How many of you had something like that go on this morning? It always never fails. It always seems to happen, you know. Every day of our lives, we're going to have something get in our way. You know, and I can look back over the years of my life, I've had a lot of things get in my way. And, you know, this man was laying by this pool for 38 years, and me for 33 years, I've had a lot of things get in my life. And it's caused me to make some very faulty decisions, and it just happens. But, you know, when things get in our way, we lose friendships, we lose opportunities, uh, we lose wealth, family issues. It can cause a lot of things. Young people, you know, the boy or the girl gets the other boy or the girl. You didn't get the boy or the girl that you wanted. It's, it can be a problem, but there's always something going to be in our way. Uh, like I said, when I look back on my life, especially the last half of it, first half of it, there were a lot of things and people that got in my way of achieving what I thought I needed to be or wanted to be and was unwilling to give them up most of them that were caused by certain circumstances, either by others or myself. And, you know, I played the blame game. I wanted to blame everybody and everything. The man we're going to look at here in a few minutes, uh, he did the same thing. He was playing the blame game. I wasn't really willing to forgive or forget. And that makes, that makes life tough. I don't like to look in the rearview mirror because that shows me where I've been, and I don't want to see that. You know, when you're driving your car, your rearview mirror is about this big, but your windshield is monstrous. I want to see where God is le- leading me through a big area. I don't want to look in that rearview mirror no more than I have to. So this morning, I'm going to look at a man who spent 38 years of misery with a lot of things in his way. So if you would, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 5. This, now I'm reading from the King James Version. A lot of people don't use this Bible, but... This is the only scripture that John used was the King James Version where this example is mentioned. So it's chapter 5, verses 1 through 9. Uh, I'm going to read that. And then after that, we're going to discuss them one at a time. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is at Jerusalem, by the sheep market, a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of impotent folks, of blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first, after the troubling of the water, stepped in was made whole of whatever disease he had. A certain man was there which had an infirmity thirty and eight years. When Jesus saw him, He knew that he had been now a long time in that case. He said unto him, Wilt thou be made whole? The impotent man answered him, Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me to the pool. But while I'm coming down, 
another steppeth down before me. Jesus simply said unto him, Arise, take up thy bed, and walk. Um, you know, I'm really into the book of John because I like his study and his detail of the things that take place. You know, I think if we look back at the geography and the way the people responded and acted in those days, it helps us to better understand what was going on. I mean, you know, they walked everywhere or they rode a donkey. It's totally different. And when you try to put yourself in their shoes and know what's going on back then, it helps you to better understand a lot of what was taking place. Uh, you know, each year we celebrate what? Christmas and Easter. That's our biggest, our biggest celebrations. But we never look too often at Jesus when he first starting to begin his ministry. And that's what John has done in his book. I mean, he started right off the bat how Jesus started his ministry, his very first miracle. Now, John mentions seven miracles in detail. He'd done a whole lot more miracles than that. But these are the seven that he mentioned and he described fully. And they're not found in a lot of other translations or a lot of other Bibles. Um, so right now, as we go through this message, I'd like to see some of the prior events that may help us understand how everything Jesus did fits together and just becomes something that we can look at. Verse 1, he said, after this, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, we don't know which feast it was. He didn't mention that. It could have been the feast of the unleavened bread. It could have been the, the Passover. It could have been several different feasts. We don't know for sure which one it was. But all males were required to attend these feasts. So it's something that was pretty strict according to the Pharisees and to the religion and tradition of that day. But I believe that Jesus had more in mind than just going to this feast. It was something else that was bringing him there also. Now, in the second chapter of John, we see the first miracle where he changed the water into wine. You're all familiar with that. You know, at a wedding... And he was there simply because his disciples and he were invited to attend. And I don't think changing of the water was what he was really into. But his mother, you know how we are with our mothers. When they say something, we're going to do it. So his mother comes up to him and she says, son, they have no wine. He said, mother, what does that have to do with me? This is not my hour. But... Like a mother, she turned to the servants and said, just do whatever he says. So you don't say no to your mother. You just got to say yes and go on about your business, even Jesus. Later, as Jesus was traveling to Galilee, all of a sudden he said, I must needs go to Samaria. Now, if you look back in tradition, if you look back in history, the Samaritans and the Jews had nothing to do with each other. The Jews would go all the way around a country just to stay away from the Samaritans. Now, here is Jesus. He's going to walk right up. He said he must needs go through Samaria. Why he must needs? Was that just something he wanted to do? Or was that something that was planned? I believe that every step, every action that Jesus took was planned. There was no coincidentals at any time. But he needs must go there. So now what's he doing? He's going to bring salvation to the Samaritans. We're not real familiar with this account. But this is the very first time that Jesus admitted he was the Messiah in John's gospel. You'll notice the whole time later, which is something we're not going to discuss today, but every time the, 
the Sadducees and the priests and the Sanhedrins and uh, Pilate, all of them questioned him. He never would admit that. This is the first time he admitted that he was the Messiah to the lady at the well. He says, he that you speak to am he. So now he's starting his ministry. I think this is probably the onset of his travel and his his ministry. The second miracle that John records in the same chapter, he's on his way back from from, uh, Galilee, is when a certain nobleman whose son was sick unto death at Capernaum. Now remember that word, certain. I mean, I kind of expounded on it, but it's very important. And it means a whole lot to every one of us. He came into Galilee and asked him to come and heal his son. Now, Capernaum was 16 miles away, and Jesus was en route to his appointed destination for another miracle who was waiting there, who had been there a long time. So his timing was crucial. 16 miles, not a walk all the way back to this guy's place in Capernaum, would have been taking on quite a while. So he says, go, your son has, is healed. That's his second miracle that John brings up. Now, verse number two. Now there is at Jerusalem by the sheep market a pool, which, called, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. Now this, was, this is a pretty neat situation. We have to go back and try to understand that. what caused these pools. What's the importance of these pools? Why are they there? King Hezekiah dammed up the Kihon River, and he built a viaduct and tunnels going into Jerusalem to give them fresh water. That wasn't his only reason for that. You had the Assyrians that had Jerusalem surrounded, and they were just looking for any opportunity to invade and take over Jerusalem. But by doing what he did, he cut off their water supply so they couldn't stay there. So finally, they had to leave. But with this water and this dam that he built at that river constantly flowing into Jerusalem, there's these two pools that opened up. There was the pool at Bethesda, and there was the pool at Siloam, and you're familiar with that, with that pool, about the blind man. So, so the pool at Bethesda wasn't meant for the impotent folk in the first place, or for anybody else at the time, but it formed these pools as the water came running through. But as time went by, the elite and the rich people of Jerusalem saw these beautiful pools of water and decided they wanted to, you know, uh, be entertained there. So what they did was they built a porch, they built a roof, a colonnade, and they'd go out there and they'd lay around on the different steps and the platforms and they'd swim in the water and bathe and carry on. Well, it got so popular that four other porches were built. So pretty soon there was five porches and colonnades there. But it got so busy and so popular there that after a while, the water started to become stagnant. And the reason for that was because at one end of the pool was a high wall. The water would come rushing down, flow, just flow over the wall. And then it would go all the way down and just flow over the next wall. There was no actual good drainage and irrigation to keep the water clean and clear. So after a while, the water just started getting stagnant. So... They vacated the pool, 
and its porches became hangouts for others, mainly the poor, the helpless, and the sick. The pool named Bethesda in Hebrew means house of mercy. The number five, five porches, five colonnades, number five stands for mercy in the Bible. Now, most of these people, verse three, I'm sorry, in verse three, in these lay a great multitude of impotent folks, of blind, halt, withered, all waiting for the moving of the water. Multitude. That's a lot of people. Do you remember when Jesus fed the multitude? There was 5,000 men, counting the women and children. So we're talking about a lot of people. So this had to really be a congested area around this pool and all there for a reason. Now, they all had their various ailments, ailments and conditions. You had the blind, that's unable to see. You had the lame, they were unable to walk. You had the paralyzed, they were probably unable to move most of their body parts. Impotent folks mean physical strength, lacking physical strength, ineffective and powerless. You know, these things can describe a lost person today. They're very ineffective, they're very powerless. And they lack the strength to do what Jesus asks them to do. We are not told if all these people were there every day. We don't know if they showed up every day, every day, every day. I'm sure there possibly was a lot of them there. But if they were crippled and they were uh, invalids, they had nothing else to do, this might be a good place to hang out. They'd be around with their friends, other people who were in the same condition. Uh, and as they spent this time, they probably befriended a lot of other people. And these people were probably in the same conditions with them. The blind probably stayed on one porch. The paralytics might have stayed on another porch. But they all basically stayed together. And all of them was waiting on the moving of the water. Now, most of them probably had to be dropped off every day. They had no way of getting there. They didn't have a job. So somebody had to get them there and pick them up. Now, verse 4 for an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first after the troubling of the water stepped in was made whole of whatever disease he had. Now the book of John is the only gospel that says this and records this. And there's a lot of controversy concerning the troubling of the water. It's been admitted from a lot of texts and manuscripts. They've claimed it unreliable. It is not believed to have been in the original text and that it was added later to explain the common belief of that day because a lot of people believed it that day. However, faith and belief was the substance of the healing of many people at the pool. Perhaps this hope of healing was real and God honored a release of faith. Or it may be that this merely a hopeful legend Nevertheless, a great multitude of sick people believed it. Now, according to archaeologists and historians, the trouble of the water happened. The reason it happened was when there was an oversupply of water at Lake Kihon, and the water come rushing down, just kind of like they do up here at the dam, here up, up, up the river. They release a lot of that water. What happens? You see the water start getting turbulent, and here it comes. So that could have been a possibility why the water was troubled sometimes. It spilled over the dam, come rushing down, now it's running through there, but it's still not cleaning out the pools. 
The event had become tradition and John recorded it that an angel caused it. In any case, can you just imagine the confusion of a multitude of people trying to get down to that water? I mean, if we're talking about hundreds, maybe thousands of people, all on these different landings, and all of a sudden they see that water moving, and can you imagine this mass of people trying to get down there to be the first one into the pool? So anyway, this had to really be something else. Since this troubling of water was only at certain times, every sick person couldn't have someone there continuously. They probably all had jobs and families to take care of. So if you were a cripple and you couldn't walk or you couldn't move, or maybe you couldn't even roll over until you got down there, uh, they were in trouble unless somebody was there. People couldn't stay there with them all the time. I'm sure a lot of times the families was glad to bring them there just to get them out of the way. So you see here, we see what Jesus sees when he comes up there. He sees a stagnant pool surrounded by stagnant people with stagnant illnesses. And most of them have had these conditions a very long time. Most waited on a porch with people just like themselves, just like today. Same people like to congregate together, blind with the blind, cripples with the crippled, or whatever the condition. People feel more at ease when they're with others that are like them. Even today, our associations, people we hang around with or are drawn to, will define our condition. People are most comfortable with people that have the same ailments as they have. Aggressive people will usually hang around aggressive people. You ever notice that? Also, complainers, gossipers, and so on will hang out with each other because they like to you know, run their mouths and share what's going on or what the problem is with somebody else. They're more comfortable hanging out with like people. If everybody we hang out with has the same condition, problem, or illness we have, we feel a lot better. We fit right in. But if one of the group gets healed and something good happens to them, our misfortune seems to stand out. We feel left out. Can you imagine being sitting next to this guy or this woman or some, whoever was there for 20 years or so and you know, both, uh, let's say you're crippled, all of a sudden this one gets healed and now he's gone, he's going to have a new life and you're still left there? You're going to feel kind of dejected. And it made it rough on a lot of people. Now, verse 5. And a certain man was there, which had an infirmity 30 and 8 years. Now, we don't know how old he was. All we know is he had this infirmity for 38 years. Maybe he had it all his life. Maybe he was only 38 years old. We don't know that. He had been coming to the pool for 38 years. All we know is he had an infirmity for that long. Other Bible translations use different words than infirmity. If this infirmity was paralytic, more likely someone had to bring him there on these different occasions. Now, I mentioned to you earlier about that word certain. When I read this, that word just kept sticking in my head. None of the other translations mentioned that word certain. They just said a man or someone. Uh, they used different wording. But this word certain really stuck out to me. It caught my attention. I couldn't get away from it, especially since John mentions it quite often in his entire gospel. Now listen to this. this, is, this I, ha- I had to go a little further with this. Webster's defined the word as known for sure, 
established beyond doubt, specific, but not explicitly named. The Greek word for certain means determined, fixed. The Hebrew word for certain means particular, specific, and definite. So this man was there for a reason. Jesus was there for this man. He was there for that reason. He didn't just walk through this pool and see all these hundreds of people sick saying, hmm, who am I going to heal today or whatever. He was going there to haunt this man. Uh, would you play the clip now? I've got a little clip that comes from The Chosen. I know a lot of you have seen it. A lot of it is kind of scriptural. Uh, but it has a lot of reality to it. So I want you to just take a look at this situation as it took place. water when it's filled up and when I do get close the others step down in front of me Thank you. 
heeft draait. For a long time, I know. And you don't want false hope again, I understand. But this pool, it has nothing for you. It means nothing. And you know it. But you're still here. Why? Now, John didn't record a lot of this the way we just saw it, but it could have happened just about that way. And we don't know that. We see the two men, I assume that was John and Peter, that were standing behind him. And you see John every now and then taking out his book and recording things. He probably just didn't record all that. And he said, do you want to be made whole? Wasn't necessarily just healed. Whole. I mean, the whole person, a brand new person. He says, it doesn't matter who's not helping you or who is helping you or what's getting in your way. All you need is me. And I just, this part here just got to me for so long that, you know, when you watch this episode, if you see the whole thing, especially afterwards, there's a whole lot that takes place afterwards. If you'll notice, every time Jesus performed a miracle from the second to the seventh, or any of the others mentioned in the other, a lot of times in the other translations, it's on the Sabbath. There's a reason for that. It wasn't going to stir up the Pharisees or anybody had he done it on just a regular day. But when he done it on that Sabbath, this all led up to his ultimate sacrifice when he's going to pay the price for breaking the Sabbath. So when Jesus saw him lie, verse 6, 
and knew that he had been a long time in that case, he said unto him, Wilt thou be made whole? On this particular day, as part of a divine appointment, Jesus leaves the temple. He strolled down to the pool of Bethesda. Today he is looking for someone. The one his father will point out. A certain person. He approaches the man. He's dressed in rags. I'm sure he's filthy. I'm sure he's dirty. And he asks him, that certain man, would you be made, would you like to be made whole? And he agrees. Now, how did Jesus know he had been that way a long time? Think about that. He says that Jesus, knowing he had been like that for a long time, I mean, this man, if he's been like this for 38 years, at this particular point, Jesus is only 30-something, under 33, possibly. But yet, he knew this man had been this way a long time. How did he know that? You know, uh, John 1 tells us that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. How did he know? How could he not know? This is God in the flesh. This is Jesus Christ. He knew this man. He knit each and every one of us together in our mother's womb. He knows our thoughts. He knows our deeds. He knows everything we do. He knows when we sit. He knows when we get up. So how would he not know that man had been sick this long? After all, he created him. He created every one of us. So he knows what's going on. In the seventh verse, the impotent man answered him, Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool. But while I am coming, another steppeth down before me. Now let's take a little bit closer look at this man. From where he was, he could probably see the pool. You know, I'm up on this platform, which is kind of like that. There was a colonnade above our head, and there's the pool, but there's the steps going down to the pool. So from where he was, he probably could see that pool. We've been seeing it for a long time. And they knew, you know, if I could just get down there, I could get saved. I mean, I could get healed. And every time he had to watch somebody else beat him to that pool and then come out of there healed, if that's the way it took place. You know, that had to be pure torture, pure jealousy to see this, to go through this day after day after this day. Now, some of us, like us old guys, we've seen a lot of things go down the road. And they've taught us a lot of lessons took us a while maybe to learn those lessons, but we slowly learned them. But look what he said. I have no man to put me in looking to people to solve his problem. I mean, really, who else would he have looked to? But he was looking to another person to help solve his problem. He blames other people for his lack of getting healed because in just about the time maybe he would get there, somebody else had run ahead and get in there. So he's blaming people for his problems. So he's probably got a bad attitude about a lot of things. He said, after a while, the lame man was waiting for tradition to heal him. Transformation and healing was coming to him in a way he least expected. Jesus was coming onto the scene. Of course, he was having to wait, but his salvation was coming onto the scene. Jesus offered transformation to him and us, something that tradition or another person can never do. Eighth verse, Jesus said unto him, Rise, take up thy bed, and walk. The man was staring at tradition to heal him, but he couldn't get there. Instead, who could heal him was right in front of him. Sometimes church people get hung up on tradition. 
And we get stuck there because it's all we've ever experienced. We don't reach out for, for anything different. So we got used to the tradition that we're used to doing, and we get stuck there. We don't look for the stirring by the Holy Spirit and step into that pool to be healed for our infirmity. He said, rise, take up your bed and walk. This had to be a hard saying for this man. Jesus told the man to do what he could not do on his own. Being paralyzed, it was impossible for him to rise or to take up his bed mat or walk. You notice what the Peter said to him in the clip? He said, you're not going to need this bed no more. You're not coming back here no more. And that's what happens to a person when they get saved. They're not going to be in that same state any longer. Life is going to be changed. It's going to be a whole new life for him. Just imagine, he's up and walking. Now he's got to go out. He's going to find a job, maybe find a wife, have kids. His whole life has changed. For 38 years, he's been in that situation. But you know what? Sometimes Jesus waits a long time. I know it took me 33 years to ever realize a lot of that. Because we just, we don't want to give up whatever it is that's in our way. We either don't want to, because we want to stay that way. But whatever it is, we just don't want to give it up. At that moment, Jesus challenged the man to believe him for the impossible. Jesus didn't stir up the water. He didn't get another man over and said, come help this guy get in the water. He didn't do none of that. What did he do? He spoke his healing. He said, Rise up, take up your bed, and walk. I mean, can you imagine legs that hadn't worked for 38 years, what they look like? They're probably about this big around. You've seen people that have been crippled a long time and how long, how much therapy it takes after doctors fix this situation. It takes them a long time. This was instant. This is how Jesus operates. It was instant. Sometimes we don't get a miracle. In our lives because somebody else got in our way. We let a moment in time that we were wronged by someone. And we blame that situation why we don't step down into that pool to be healed. We just hold back. We don't want to do it. Maybe it was something someone said. And we let that get in the way of us being healed. We'll find many times God will tell us to do things that we say we can't do. For many reasons, but mostly because someone else or something else gets in the way. We don't want to go around it. It just gets in our way and we don't want to move it. Be assured, he's going to challenge us also. He's going to challenge you. When he's trying to accomplish something in you, you are a certain person to him. You're not just anybody. You're not just someone that's here today. You are a certain person. That God knows, God loves, and God is willing to do whatever it takes to get you to follow him. There are a lot of reasons people wait before they call on God for healing or for salvation. Some want a more convenient season. Well, it's just not convenient right now for me to do this. They want a more convenient season when it's a little easier for them to do it. Maybe they want to see dreams and visions. uh, And those happen sometimes. Or signs and wonders. And maybe they're not willing to give up a sin that they have and confess that sin. They like it. They don't want to give it up. 
But he said, if you confess your sin, I'm faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. He said, I will take your sin. I will cast it as far as the east is from the west. You know, Tim told me one day, I need to just share that. It took me a while to think about as far as the east is from the west. You know, if you're traveling east, you're heading, you know, east, you're never going to get to the west. As long as you're traveling in that direction, you're always traveling east. You never get there. Now, that's just different north and south. If you're down south and you start traveling north, you're going to get to the north. Because by the time you get up to the top of the north and you go back down, you're traveling south. It changes. So Jesus knew what he was doing. He knew what he was saying. That means he's going to take your sin. There's no end to where he's going to cast it. And you don't have to worry about it no more. So immediately the man, verse 9, was made whole, took up his bed and walked. And on the same day was the Sabbath. Immediately he was made well. He responded how? In faith. He believed Jesus at what he had said. So he responded. The fact of his healing was confirmed in that he had the strength to bend back down, pick up that bed, which now we're not talking about a full frame bed like we sleep on. This was just a mat, you know, made of maybe straw or cloth or whatever. But he leaned down, he picked that up and he walked off with it. And I often thought, and that goes later on in my study. We're not going to go through that today, but there was a reason he carried that bed where everybody could see him carrying that bed. He was healed physically, but not spiritually. He did not know who that was that just healed him. That was Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He didn't know that. So he's healed physically. Now, Jesus had to find him later. And look what he said to him. He said, go and sin no more or something worse may happen to you. And that was kind of a tough deal. At one point, we remember that the apostles asked Jesus, who sinned that this man be born blind? He said, neither the man nor his parents sinned. But he was born blind for the glory of God, so God's name could be glorified. There was a reason for that. We're born blind at this time. Now, guys, like I said, you and I, we're certain people. To God who created us, you're not just another someone. You are a particular person. You are a definite person in God's eyes. He's waiting on each one of us to get rid of what's in our way so he can complete his work in us. And as long as we hang on to what's in our way, it's going to take him a while to do his work. But remember, God will do his work in us one way or the other. So I'm going to stop there. There's just so much more, but I know I've taken up a lot of your times, and I want to thank you for coming, and uh, maybe we'll get a chance to go a little bit further with this, because I'm definitely going to continue with that study. So remember, God loves you. Jesus died for you. He gave his life. He shed his blood so that you might have eternal life. You will no longer have to be the, worry about where you're going to spend eternity. And, you know, you have to make a choice. You're going to have to move something out of your way that's holding you back of doing what you can do for this church. This church is fortunate. We have some people here that just bend over backwards to make it work and to, and to get it going. 
I mean, they just, they just help. And how do they say that? Only about 10% of the people tithe, give 10% of the money, and less than that, do other things. But we need to get these things out of our way if we're going to follow Jesus. All righty? Thank you.